so glad to have you here today, Lydia. Lydia is living currently in Charleston, South Carolina. And she made the very brave move this past summer to pick up and to move to help start a new church in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, about this time last year, we had a young couple come and uh, share their vision that God was calling them to plant a church in downtown Charleston. And it was only the two of them at this point. And earlier before that service, before Lydia had met them, before Lydia knew that they were going to be sharing in the service, she felt the Holy Spirit whisper something into her heart as she was spending time praying and seeking the Lord's guidance for what she would do next. She was a senior. Her plan was to, to take, uh, she was going to be in this master's program at UNC, and her plan was to do that, but she felt this sense of discontent that that's not what it was supposed to be, and she asked the Lord to tell her what she's supposed to do and to give direction. And she felt the Lord whisper church planting into her heart, which was something totally out of the blue for her. And then on that very day, two young church planters stand up and start to share their story. And she felt the Lord prompt her that that's what she's supposed to do. And so she gave up on that master's program that she was already accepted into and moved to Charleston, South Carolina. And as the first team member for that church plant, we're so glad you're here today, Lydia. We love you. We've been praying for you, and we're very proud of you. Awesome. Let's give it up for her one more time. Also a warning that if you're going to just try to sneak back into church, you might get called out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Jesus. All right. We are diving in today into John chapter 15, and uh, we're going we're gonna, to, over these next several weeks, we're going to walk through this chapter together and through this, this piece of the chapter where Jesus gives this beautiful description of himself being the vine and the father being the gardener and us being the branches that are connected to the vine, life being drawn from the vine, his life being pushed into us. And um, that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks together. We feel like the Holy Spirit is drawing us as a church into a season of deeper intimacy. And we feel like a lot is going to be unfolded for us in this passage as we study this together. We feel like this is a step that he's inviting us into. And we think that he's moving and he's stirring in us and calling us into deeper intimacy, not just a flash to get attention from people out there. Not just something to raise profile of our church and what's happening here. It's not about that. We feel like he's calling us into a deeper intimacy together with each other, but most importantly, with him. And so that's why we're moving through this passage. And we're excited what he's going to teach us and how he's going to challenge us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us today. You have been leading us and we trust you in that. We pray that you would push back the distractions, that you would push back doubt, that you would push back as we sang in those songs, these, the, the, the distraction of things that are not true that are being spoken to us. But instead, help us to trust in the simple gospel. I will rejoice in the simple gospel. 
It has transformed us. We rejoice in it. And we just ask for you to move, cultivate. You're the gardener, and we're open to you. Cultivate us. Cut back where we need to be cut back. Prune where we need to be pruned. So that your fruit can grow in us. This is our prayer. And we trust you to answer it. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Some context for this passage that we're going to be in. This is uh, a part of what's known as Jesus' final discourse. His farewell discourse that he's sharing with his disciples. It's taking place on the last night of his life with them. And this last time that he has with them, they are in the room together. They've been sharing the meal. And in this last moment that he has with them, this is part of what Jesus leaves for his disciples, part of the challenge that he leaves to them and part of the encouragement that he leaves for them as well. In this whole section of scripture, uh, it begins in chapter 13 in the book of John. And we've got 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 that are almost all just the words of Jesus. All right, well, we have that in other places where we've got the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in the book of Matthew where this extended teaching of Jesus all grouped together in one place without much in between happening, all happening in one place. And the teachings of Jesus grouped together there in that whole section. And we've got this passage as well. We tend to focus a lot on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we've got a sermon series uh, next year that we're going to be walking through that. And, and that's something that I'm constantly drawn back to is Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. But I find myself convicted that I don't lean in the same way into these passages. What we've got here. It is, uh, once again, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, concentrated teaching of Jesus piled on top of each other, word after word after word of Jesus himself, recorded by John the Apostle, intimate friend of Jesus, intimate friend of Jesus, who is laying out for us, these are the last words. He was there. He was at the table. He was in the room. And, and you get the sense as he's laying all these out. If you've got one of those red letter versions of the Bible where the words of Jesus show up in red, then your pages are bleeding through this section. It's just red, 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 red. And it's like the Apostle John, this friend of Jesus, this intimate friend of Jesus is like draining his memory, like wringing out his memory every last drop of every last word that Jesus said on that night, I've got to get it down and I've got to make sure that this survives. And I've got to make sure that what Jesus spoke to us continues to be spoken to his church. And this is such an important piece of scripture. As important as the Sermon on the Mount, these concentrated words of Jesus placed here together. And this is Jesus' last night, his last opportunity to share with his disciples. And this is what he says. So in the context of that, we see that Jesus, at the beginning of this section, in chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet. He gets down on his hands and knees to wash their feet in this role of a servant, not just like a servant, but really in the role of a slave. This is not even something that a Jewish servant was allowed to do. This was a role reserved for a non-Jewish servant. 
And Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of his disciples. And it says there in John, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This is what the full extent of his love looked like. And it's beautiful. And he washes the feet of all the disciples around the table. At this point, Judas is still seated at the table. So that means Jesus washes Judas's feet as well. Even though he knows what is coming. He knows the betrayal, as we're told, as the passage unfolds. And yet, we see this act of premeditated and intentional love and service that Jesus gives even to the disciple who is about to betray him. We see Jesus predicting the denial of Peter in this passage. We see Jesus being very careful, even though he knows the cross is coming, even though he knows one of these disciples has already betrayed him, even though he knows all that is happening, he knows the gruesome walk he is about to take to his own death. In the midst of this section of Scripture, Jesus intentionally comforts his disciples as he looks ahead for what is coming. He gives them the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on them a counselor who will lead them and guide them this is the farewell discourse of jesus and right here in the middle of that in chapter 15 we see jesus move into one of these extended parables that he tells do i need to switch mics okay thanks patrick while we're in the mood of giving it up for people let's give it up for patrick Sorry. <laughs> it's stuck. There we go. Thanks, buddy. No, appreciate you. No, you're the man. No apologies. No apology needed. That's the man right there. Thank you, Patrick. Awesome. And thank you to all of our volunteers who get here so early on a Sunday morning to make all this happen. This is, yeah. We love this space and it is home for us, but you all realize like we have to come in here and set all of this up and these guys get here so early and and just the women and men who pour so much time into this place. We you are the church. We can't do it without you. And we just really appreciate all that you do. And with that comes you just never know what's going to happen with the sound system, right? Because this is an old building and who knows what's going to happen. All right, cool. Let's keep moving. All right. So here we are in the uh, final discourse of Jesus. And here's what Jesus has to say. He begins with, and we're actually only going to get through two lines of it today, all right? Two parts of the image. In this extended parable that he begins to show us, that he begins to tell us. And he takes this organic thing from everyday life, something that everyone in that culture would have understood, something that was a part of the everyday culture, And he pulls it out of the everyday culture and he shows them this is what the kingdom is like. As he's done so many times before and he tells them, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. And my father is the gardener. In the NIV, that's the way that it's translated. My father is the gardener. We're only going to be on those two lines today. That's as far as we're going to get. Here's something crucial 
about Jesus, the way that he phrases this. All right, Jesus makes that statement, I am the true vine. Now, this is important because this is the seventh time in the Gospel of John. John is a brilliant writer. He's one of my favorite writers of all time, obviously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, but brilliant the way he puts this book together, the way he structures and forms this work of art that is the Gospel of John. This is the seventh time in this gospel that we see one of these metaphors that Jesus uses where he says, I am, and then he shows a metaphor, okay? There are other times in the gospel where Jesus says the words, I am, when he's speaking, but there are seven times in the gospel of John when he does it intentionally tied to a metaphor. John does this all the time. In in John chapter 1, in the poetic prologue, beginning of the book, he uses the number seven again. Seven times he uses the word light at the beginning where he's showing us that Jesus is the new creation story. And so he's tying it back to Genesis chapter one. What's the first thing that God creates? Light. He speaks, let there be light and there was light. So seven times the number seven echoing completion, perfection and pointing back to that Genesis narrative that there were six days of creation and on the seventh God rests this Seven representing completion and fullness. And so seven times he uses that light imagery. Seven times John points out different miracles that Jesus performs. Seven miracles. And we get the sense of what he's building. He's building towards this fullness, towards this completeness. And here we have it again seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes I am statements. I am and then he gives a metaphor to describe who he is. The first one, he says, I am the bread of life. Second, I am the light of the world. The third, I am the door for the sheep, the gate for the sheep. The fourth, I am the good shepherd. The fifth, I am the resurrection and the life. The sixth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now this final one, this completion of all of them, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. It's so interesting that Jesus uses the imagery of the vine because it was an image that was repeated and was important all the way throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Throughout the holy scriptures of these people that Jesus is talking to, these scriptures that they were immersed in, these scriptures that they had been raised in, they were internalized for them and for this entire culture that Jesus is speaking to. And he goes back to this image that they're so familiar with that they've heard over and over again. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's vine. As God's vine, we see the image all over the place. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophet Ezekiel. It's in the prophet Hosea. It's in the prophet Jeremiah. It's in the prophet Isaiah. However, each time that one of the prophets uses this image, even though the people saw themselves as the vine of God, But each time one of the prophets uses this image, it turns into a negative image. And what the prophet ends up doing is pointing out the way that the vine has gone wild, that the way that the vine has become disconnected, the way that the vine has produced only sour grapes and bad fruit. 
It happens every time. And the image gets used as a way of pointing out Israel's failure to bear good fruit. Perhaps the most stunning way is in Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to this. I love the poetry of Isaiah. And here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 5. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he went and looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. This is the repeated image of the vine all throughout the Old Testament. And the vine had become actually an image of Israel's failure. It had become an image of disobedience, an image of rebellion, and an image of exile. Now, let me take a side step for just a minute. We did not get to fully address this last Sunday because we had the kids leading in the service, and it simply would not have been appropriate for us to talk in explicit terms about the events of last Saturday and the mass shooting that took place at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. An act that was fueled by hatred for a group of people. An unthinkable act fueled by pure Hatred for a group of people. It was anti-Semitic. Beyond being anti-Semitic, it was an act of hatred towards all immigrants and refugees because the shooter expressed this vile anger towards all immigrants and towards refugees. And one of the reasons that that group was targeted is because they were connected to a group that was helping in the resettlement of refugees. So there was a large picture taking place there. Unfortunately, sometimes throughout the history of Christianity, theologians have gone tragically astray in the way that they speak about the failure of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And it grows into a sense of anti-Semitism. There are great theologians in history that are revered for their mind, for their hearts, for other things, and some of their thoughts and words have been twisted And people have acted out of hatred. These anti-Semitic acts. Let it be extremely clear. Let it be extremely clear. There is zero place for any anti-Semitism within Christianity. To be anti-Semitic is to be anti-Jesus. 
It is to be anti-Christian. It is to be anti-Christ. There is zero place for it. This is a group of people who throughout Scripture are spoken of as God's treasured possession. His treasured and cherished people. This is a group of people that when God planned to redeem the world, he used them to do it. He blessed them so that the entire world might be blessed through them. This is a group of people that when God decided to come and to dwell among us, he began with them first. This is a group of people who when God decided to become embodied among us, to take on flesh and blood, to redeem us, he became one of them. One of us, absolutely, but it's important to remember one of them specifically. There is zero place for it. We denounce it, we reject it, and we also respond to it. On November 18th, we're going to have a community meal. It's going to be hosted by our friend Vimala at her restaurant, and the guests of honor will be local refugee families. We invite you to be a part of that. It's something that we were already talking about doing and already planning. And in light of this and the connection of the refugee hatred that is connected to that event, we feel like this is, needs to be part of our response. Several people from our church went to a prayer vigil, an interfaith prayer vigil at a local synagogue this week to stand next to our Jewish brothers and sisters and to mourn with them and also to stand in solidarity and to say that as Christians and as followers of Jesus, we denounce that, we reject that, and we respond with love. That is the character of Jesus. That is the character of Jesus. There's a spiritual writer, a guy named Henry Nouwen. He has passed away. Brilliant mind. Was going through uh, his Ph.D. process, and when it came for the moment for him to stand and do his public defense, he had an emotional collapse. And the pressure of it and all of it caused an emotional collapse for him. It's something that was with him for the rest of his life. Many of you can feel the weight of that. You sense the pain of that. What he did in response is he went and he decided to live among a group with special needs, and he became a part of this group and lived there as a neighbor among these people with special needs. And from there, he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he wrote, and his writings still continue to have massive impact across the church and among followers of Jesus. Here's one of the things that he said. One of the main tasks of theology, theology being the study of God, one of the main tasks of theology is to find words that do not divide but unite, that do not create conflict but unity, that do not hurt but heal. This is what Jesus does. Yes, some of his words are confrontational. No doubt you can't get around that. Yes, Jesus creates a clear 
point of decision. You can't get around that. But over and over again, we see that his words are targeted to heal. And to unite, not just with each other, but in the very deepest way, to unite us to each other as we are united in the Father. This is what he does in this image of the vine, of the true vine. This image that had become an image of disobedience, that had become an image of rebellion, that had become an image of exile, Jesus tells his disciples, this is the good news. You've heard over and over and over again about the failed vine. But I'm here to tell you that I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And every failure that has taken place, I have come to heal. And I have come to succeed at every point where you failed. Throughout history, as we look at that, we look at the image of the vine as a symbol of disobedience and rebellion and exile. That is a failure that does not belong to Israel alone. It is all of ours. Israel is a stand-in for humanity in this image. And every single one of us have failed. It began back at the dawn of humanity. That Jesus says, I am the true vine. I have come to heal I am the true vine. I've come to succeed at every point where you failed, where you could not do it because you cannot do it on your own. So I came and I have done it for you. I am the true vine. And then he echoes with the same. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. I love this. So the one that's described in Isaiah chapter five as this beloved who who took exquisite care to prepare the soil to plant the choicest of vines, to tend and to cultivate. Jesus is telling us he is still at work. This gardener is still at work. He's at his work again, and this time he is attaching us to the life of the vine that will never fail. The history of the vine showed us our own shared failure as humanity, but Jesus has come to heal that. We failed, and what we failed to do on our own, Jesus has accomplished for us by his own strength, by his own grace, by his own power. In every place where we failed, Jesus succeeded. He is the true vine. His father is the gardener. In this one image of the gardener, we see a picture of God that spans the entire narrative of Scripture. Love this word. I love this image. This picture of God that spans the entire sweep of Scripture, the whole narrative. We see him in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, planting that garden, tending it, placing us in it. We see him as the one who is preparing the promised land for his people. And the description of the promised land is so beautiful and is often tied up with this promise of the fruit of the vine that will be a sign of their flourishing life that he is preparing for them there. We see him in the story of the resurrection, where at the resurrection, the first people who saw Jesus, it says that they mistook Jesus as what? The gardener. They thought he was the gardener. Man, they were so close. There's so much truth in that. And we see him there 
And of course, we see him in the in the book of Revelation, in the healing and the restoration of all things in this city that within the city, there is this restored garden. We see it from beginning to end. This image of God as the gardener. It runs all the way through and he is a gardener that will not give up. He will not give up on us. And he's planted his own son among us to bring our wild and rebellious and tangled and dead branches into alignment with him. He's cutting back and he's pruning so that we can abide with him in the richest kind of way to draw life from him, to bear the kind of fruit that is consistent with the character of the vine himself. The gardener has seen the root problem of human sin. He was in the Garden of Eden when humanity was tempted and failed. He was also in the Garden with Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is tempted and he prevails on our behalf. When under the weight of that moment when Jesus could have walked away, he did not. And he walked to his death instead. This is the gardener. He was in the garden on the evening of Good Friday when they laid Jesus to rest in a, tomb, in a borrowed tomb, says in a garden tomb, and sealed the grave. And he was the one who was in the garden on Easter Sunday when Jesus walked out of that tomb in victory. Jesus' death to bring us salvation to pay the price for our sin, and then to bring us into reconciled life with him, to bring us into the vine, to bring us into the vine. The gardener is at it again. He's established the true vine whose branches are going to bear fruit in a world that is hungry for it, a world that's hungry for the real thing. And over these next weeks together, this is where we're going. We're going to learn from the vine himself, and we're going to learn from the gardener what it means to abide in him, what it means to rest in him, what it means to bear good fruit, fruit that will last. This image of the vine is a very intentional one, not only because of that history of Israel, but also because it's an image of permanence and longevity. Here's the thing about a vine and a vineyard. When you're beginning a vineyard, it's understood. It was understood then. It's understood now that for the first two to three years, the fruit's not going to be worth much. This is something you have to be invested in for the long haul. It's going to take two to three harvest seasons before you're going to get the kind of fruit that's going to be quality enough that you're going to want to use it for winemaking. Oh, interesting. Thank you, Donna. Awesome. But this is longevity. This is a gardener who's in it for the long haul. Who knows that this is going to take time. He knew that when he promised that to the people who had come out of slavery and didn't have a home of their own. He knew that when the people had been in exile, and he promised them that. He knew that when they were a nation of nomads, wandering around in the desert with no place to settle. He knew that when he gave them this image. And he said, you're going to be my vine. You're going to be rooted 
And he knew it again when Jesus is saying that to us. And he's saying, I'm going to root myself in you and you're going to be rooted in me. And this is not a flash in the pan. This is not quick growth. This is not about making you feel good. It's not about just an experience and an isolated experience. This is about a long life of flourishing, living, abiding in the vine, a long life of abiding and bearing fruit in season after season after season. This is where he's taking us. Are you in for the long haul? He's not going anywhere. He's not giving up on you when the growth doesn't happen quickly. The growth is in his hands. He's going to show us over these next several weeks together what it looks like to abide, what it means when he begins to prune the branches and the kind of good fruit that he's seeing in us and that he's calling into reality out of us. He's here to stay. He's in it for the long haul. He's not going anywhere. So we close up today. We're going to share in the meal that we've shared together so many times. And today, as we do it, we remember this passage. And we remember that Jesus is sharing this meal with his disciples on his last night there with them. And it's in that context that he's laying out so much of this teaching. And Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life in the gospel of John. And in this moment, then he takes the bread that is on the table and he says, this bread represents my body that is broken to make you whole. The bread of life now broken in death. So that you might be made alive. Then he took the cup that was on the table, the fruit of the vine. I am the true vine who pours out his life for the salvation of the world. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ for our redemption. We're going to share in this meal together. We're going to invite you forward. There are going to be two stations, one on this side, one on this side. I'm going to have my friend Robbie serve over here. I will bring that to you over there. Friend Joel is going to serve right here, uh, the gluten-free option if you need that. And then I will also be on this side serving. But as we get ready to move into communion, in the spirit of joy, in which we're going to share in this, the sense of joy and what it means to be connected to the vine and the fruit that he's going to bear in us. In that same spirit, I'm going to invite a friend to come up, our friend Gregory, that you guys know so well. Come on up, Gregory. Let's give it up for Gregory. <laughs> And Gregory plays piano. He is a musician. 
And uh, Gregory found us uh, maybe a couple months ago, right, buddy? Something like that, a couple months ago. Yep. I don't know. Uh, all my life. There you go. I don't know. Yeah. Through our friends at Reality Ministries. And Gregory, we're so glad that you're a part of our family. And we're honored to have you play today as we all share in communion. And so Gregory's going to play for us. Maggie's going to sing with him. And uh, in that spirit of joy, we're going to invite you to come forward and to share in this meal. The fruit of the vine, the one who said, I am the true vine and I am the bread of life.